Welcome to Country Squire Radio. Welcome to Country Squire Radio. I'm Bo. And I'm John David. <laughs> hey, Bo. How you doing, Bo? I'm doing really, really, really well. Like, really, really well. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Yeah? Yeah, doing great. I'm so glad, man, because... <laughs> Like, like this is this is the thing. Like, you sound like someone that just drank some some gin and tonic. Well, I, I, there was no tonic involved. I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that helps. We understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, man. We we've we've got a fun episode we're going to be diving into this week. But I just I want to take like a brief moment, really quick, because I I feel like I feel like it needs to be like acknowledged. So so this year, you and I, we've been traveling around. This great country, at least, you know, one specific quadrant of this great country. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we entered into this year with kind of like grand vision of like how we wanted to do this and kind of this this next era and this next kind of phase of Country Squire Radio and everything. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it's 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 we had high, high hopes uh, as we kind of like like charged forward into this era. Right. And and part of that was we wanted to get together, be in the same room, get that energy of like classic Country Squire radio. Yeah. And like check, done. Like honestly, like I, th- I feel and I think the listeners have been able to feel this too. That part's been solid. Yeah. And I mean like the the energy is there, the 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 charisma is there. You and I we have the ability to kind of like do that like nonverbal communication sometimes right. that like <laughs> that kind of helps. That also kind of lets lets we're like, all right, hang on, hang on. Oh no, no, no we don't want to we don't want to disrupt standards and practices. Let's, <laughs> let's 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 like gear it back in. It's like that nice like flow that kind of goes into it, and just like the natural energy that comes in. So that, that's been really good. We also wanted the opportunity to kind of step away from life and kind of get a chance to spend some time with one another, just in general, because like you know we're friends and like we haven't seen each other. I know, right? Yeah. You know, it, you get to a certain it age comes this regular reunion kind of deal. Yeah, and you, you but you do get to kind of like a, a stage in life where it's like like the friends you've got are the friends you you got. That's you, true. You want to like you know those are you know don't the, lose them. Those are, what, one is silver, one is gold, or whatever the saying is, right? And like we want to make sure I, I don't know what the saying is. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Oh, the point is that it's like we want to make sure that we're we're treasuring that relationship by by you know like like fueling it by by spending some time together that that this is this year has afforded us. I mean, we're yeah. midway through the year, but I'm, I know this episode's going to come out later in the year and that sort of thing. I'm trying to calculate fourth dimensionally, as uh, Doc <laughs> Brown would say. But regardless, like that's been really good, right? Like so, check mark there. Here's the thing, man. We we've wanted so bad to like go so many places. And the fact of the matter is that dude, you you've got you've got a young family. You've got like we both have young families, but you got a young young family. You got yeah. like an infant family right now. Yeah, it's it's I mean frankly just been harder to accomplish than we thought it would be. Well, and it and it's it's tough. And so like I just want to like acknowledge that like, you know, with with these podcasts that we've been we've been working on you know, we bring a lot of ourselves into them. We bring a lot of knowledge. We bring a lot of like charisma. We bring, you know, kind of our, our history relationship with each other and with the audience into it. And it's heavy lifting, but man, I just want to acknowledge that you've been doing some heavy, heavy lifting, like especially this, this particular retreat in particular. Yeah. And I really appreciate you, brother. And yeah. Like, I, people, I know that, I know that you want to keep some things close to the chest and I appreciate that, but I just need the listeners to know that John David has been doing the work for y'all <laughs> right now. And I, I just, I, y'all, y'all need to you know, show him some love. This will probably be weeks in the future. Yeah. No, right. You know, but I just, but it, it'll still count. So well, sh- show John David some love. Well, that's kind of Bo. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we, obviously have to you know sacrifice to you know do what we do what we do and do what we love and yeah. do and do what we're obligated to do and so here we are and we're thankful man, to god for all the blessings that he's given us and we just keep on moving yeah man yeah speaking of moving we will be moving into out outside of this quadrant which we have i think i think yeah, it's what? safe to say right country squire radio has dominated this quadrant <laughs> of the united states we done woe it out yeah this <laughs> the sec who'd have thunk it we I, stuck in that air well actually texas isn't in the sec is it it is now oh is it now yeah it, it is uh texas a&m has been in the sec for I don't know, several years, yeah. Okay. And then uh, Texas, the UT, Austin, is going to be joining the SEC uh, in a few years. Well, there you go. So, All right, so yeah. fair enough. So we, we've dominated the SEC. Yeah, we, done. Tom, no, conquered. We, we yeah. conquered it. It's time to step out a little bit further, and I think you know where this is going. We're going to the Las Vegas Pipe Show. Ow! 
<laughs> Viva Las Vegas October, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we want people to go to the website, VegasPipeShow.com. Go there. Be sure to go ahead and buy your ticket now. Yes. Uh, go ahead and do that now, October 21st through 23rd. Get your plane tickets. Buy your ticket to the show. And, man, the purchase covers the entrance fee. It comes with a free entry to win a few door prizes. And, man, it's just it's going to be a great time. Obviously, like any good pipe show, you'll have the opportunity to purchase awesome stuff and interact with some of the world's most famous pipe makers and tobacconists and things of that nature. But this is put on by our good friend Brian Levine of Pipes Magazine Radio fame. And and Brian, you know, he's, he's really plugged into the industry. He has a good finger on the pulse of what is, you know, going to be exciting for pipe enthusiasts. And so uh, he's really put a lot of energy into the social media and the new media aspect of this. So you're going to have YouTubers featured and uh, podcasters and all the creative minds that make the current pipe community so special. It's going to be something to really, really look forward to. So we're looking forward to seeing you and we can't wait to, oh man, be sure to get your tickets, sign up and we'll see you there. It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. You know, the great thing about Las Vegas is it is a part of classic Americana. You know, you, you, no matter. It is. Yeah. It really is. You can't argue that. Like yeah. whatever, whatever you try to project onto it, whatever your kind of idea of Vegas is, you have to acknowledge that it is a critical part of classic Americana. When people think of America, they, they've got like these little like pockets because we're such a diverse nation. Man. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's such a massive country with so many like diverse landscapes and areas and cultures and, mm -hmm. and cities. And you've got these kind of hallmark cities that stand out as those kind of pinnacle, iconic spaces. Yeah. And it's the way in which we are represented to the world is through these different cities. Good or bad. Good or bad. Yeah. And how we kind of export, you know, that imagery and what we choose to own, what we don't choose to own, what we can't, don't have any choice of because it's just, <laughs> we, we have to own it because it is who we are. America is an amazing country, is it not? It is. It really is. And part of what we are known for around the world, like, you know, you think about what comes from America. And while this has been, there's been a lot of competition in this area, but when you think historically, America, one of its best exports has been movies. Yeah. Movies. And one, and one of its most influential, probably. I, I mean, would think so. Culturally. I mean, you think about, yeah. The I mean, power of film is yeah. hard to understate. Yeah. It, it, as said on an audio podcast, the power of the visual. <laughs> <laughs> the power of the visual. But you know, it's interesting. I've been very much on like a movie, not, not even like movie kick, but like classic Hollywood. Yeah. There is a series right now on Paramount Plus called The Offer. Have you heard of this at all? No. Uh -uh. Okay. Uh, so Paramount, you know, all of these different companies have their streaming service. You got Disney Plus, you got the, you know, Netflix. Everybody's got their own Netflix now and whatever plus and whatever it is. Paramount has their Paramount Plus. I got onto it because they were doing a Halo series, and I loved, loved the video game back then. I wanted to see the uh, the, the show. The show was, eh, you know, yeah, it, right. it, it was all right. But the funny thing is, you know, Paramount Plus also has all of like the Star Trek stuff. And, oh, really? Yeah, and I yeah. started watching that new Picard series, and I enjoyed the first season a lot. The second season was, you know, you know it is what it was. But the first season I, I enjoyed very much. And I started watching the new, I think it's called Strange New Worlds, and it's like the Enterprise kind of Captain Kirk era, okay. or like early early era in that kind of vein. And it's been like classic adventure of the week type of just, right. you know, food for thought, but also kind of like just candy for your brain at the same time. You know, like, <laughs> and, and it's been good. I've, I've enjoyed it. But while I've been going for those shows, I kept on getting this promotion for the offer. And the offer tells the story of the creation of The Godfather. And it's like the background, like the producer that was working behind the scenes and the studios and everything else. And ever since, it's a great show, by the way. I, I highly recommend that series, especially if you like The Godfather, which I love The Godfather. Like, I highly recommend it. But as I was watching that series and like, you know, all these like mobsters and all these like movie producers and all these different people that were like involved in it and just kind of the back end of like Hollywood, you know, it's, it got me in this mindset of like, you know, I bet there were a lot of pipes in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, like, like behind the scenes, yeah. you think about like, like classic Americana earlier, even than that. Cause I think that was like seventies era. Like you, you had to have like a lot of meeting rooms that, you know, were packed with pipe smoke. Sure. And I was like, you know what? The next half bowl histories that we do, I want to find a pipe smoker in the like in the movie business that was like making movies. And it didn't take long. I was about to say you probably. Yeah, you there probably had several options. Tons, tons of folks. But what I found was an individual 
that was not just a pipe smoker and not just a movie maker. In fact, like his in, like his work in the in, the movie industry was completely like it's innovative. He was a champion. He would, but but beyond that, the dude was just a freaking like superhero, like an action hero, like of the like of the movie variety before yeah. he even touched the motion picture. That's crazy. And I am going to be talking to y'all today about Marion C. Cooper. Now, here's what I love about you know, our approach with half bowl histories, right? Like before with like histories, like a hero's the bowl, like, you know, that hero was always in the name. And so you always had to kind of like, like, all right, well, there needs to be something heroic about them and everything yeah, else. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think- <laughs> Here's Satan. He smoked a pipe. Here's the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> no, Satan's a cigar smoker. Satan's a cigar right. smoker. <laughs> right. Let's, let's be real. Right. Uh, but no, 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 no. Satan does not smoke a pipe. Miriam C. Cooper did. My point, though, is that people are people. You know, like they're, like they're we're messed up individuals. You yeah. and I know this very, very well. Like there's no, there's no perfect human other than the one that was. But other than that, like there is no, like all of us have our flaws. And so like trying to kind of hold that hero standard. Right. That being said, with the, with the half full histories, we can look at just super interesting people with something of like, like just the lens of like how interesting, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> As opposed to like, let's talk about how, how heroic that was. That being said, this dude has got some history, some, yeah. some pretty epic history in his past. Miriam C. Cooper, he was born in Jacksonville, Florida on October 24, 1893. Now, 1893, like way back, way right? Back. Like we're casting our mind back here. He was, as a kid, he loved adventure, like magazines and like travel magazines, but those... You know this classic, like ah, British uh, as the as the British boys have, have gone across uh, to the world. They see the you know the tribes of Africa are here, and exactly now set up. They've got those. You remember those like caps they used to wear? Yeah, and like the big like those those pants, like the pants that like jacked up to their knees. Yeah, with the with the plumes on the side of right. them and stuff. Right, yeah. right, right. But this was the era where people I mean, we still hadn't gone to Antarctica yet. Like we like we still haven't as a human race visited by this time the South Pole. Right. Like, There's all of these these areas of, of the United of, of the world that are are kind of in the like still uncharted. They were uncharted. And then you also had kind of the Western world kind of like seeping into all of these different areas. Right. Trying to understand like coming back with all these fantastic adventure stories and everything of like, you know, again, totally messed up views and everything that was <laughs> right, like all course, packed into yeah. it. But like that captured the imagination of this young boy of Miriam C. Cooper back in, you know, the 1890s. And so he was, he was obsessed with with kind of this concept of like adventure and travel and that Indiana Jones type of mindset. You know yeah. what I mean? Like before Indiana Jones was Indiana Jones. Uh, he would grow up. He graduated from Lawrenceville School in New Jersey in 1911, and he went off to join the Navy. Now, here's the thing. Miriam C. Cooper, he goes off, he joins the Navy. He's all about, you know, armed service. He's very much like a, a, a patriot kind of, you know, he's brought up in America. He's, he's a, a very pro-America. The problem is that he is also very pro his own mind. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, I've, I have not joined the armed forces. You know, you have not either. We've got several listeners who do. And from what I understand from friends who have served, a large part of what you do as you kind of go through that process is you kind of have to take, a, you have to kind of take yourself back and kind of like identify with the group as a whole. Like that's an important part of kind yeah. of like, um, I, there's a term for that and I forget what it is, but you kind of like become part of your unit, right? Mm -hmm. Like it becomes your family and you have to kind of set, you know, whatever kind of identified you as an individual aside so that you can operate as a unit, right? Yeah. He was kind of bad at that. Like, <laughs> and, and the worst part is that it came out not just in a like, I'm an individual, but like, I'm an individual who thinks that like naval supremacy is BS. Like, wow. Specifically, I think that error for like the Air Force could like basically come over here and just like dominate us. And so everybody like he's like he would argue constantly for the concept of aerial supremacy over over the Navy in particular. Right. Like his own tribe. Right. <laughs> like, right. So right. he was constantly like creating this rebel rousing type. He was this rebel rouser that existed in the Navy. And everybody hated him. They hated working with him and everything because he was like, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> we could fly up here. You know, they just like, kill us. We're just out here in boats. We're just sitting targets. You, you realize we're all sitting targets, guys, right? Like, you all, like, <laughs> you all realize this, right? So he doesn't last very long in the Navy because, again, he's, he's constantly causing problems. And all he does is he talks about how much better it would be to fly. It's basically, 
it's kind of catty, honestly, for the armed forces, if you yeah. think about it. Like, you yeah. know, in the kind of like 19 teens, all things considered. But hey, you know, it is what it is. That's that's where he was. That's interesting. He left the Navy. He became a journalist uh, in 1916. And at that same time, he also joined the National Guard. Now, kicked out of the Navy, joins the National Guard. Same basic concept here. He wants to fly. He doesn't. He doesn't like ships. He doesn't like like uh, you know any kind of like naval or like the National Guard as it relates to anything on the ground or the sea. He longs to be in the air. Wants to be in the air. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I it it casts my mind back to um, Jacques Cousteau and how it was like the exact opposite for him. Right, like he wanted to fly, but then he found his love of sea. And so we have this dude here who is constantly going out to sea, but wants to be in the air. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He actually does fairly well in his service for the National Guard. They're going to actually make him a lieutenant. But he finally turns that down. He's like, you know what? How about I just go learn how to fly? You know, like, like, like what? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like, it's like, you know, y'all, y'all all hate me. All I do is talk about how much I wish I was like not here. So and get rid of flying. me and put me in the air. Exactly. Give me what I want. He goes to the uh, aeronautics school in Atlanta. He graduates top of his class. And uh, that's exactly what he does. Now, this happens to coincide with um, a, a tiny world event known as World War One. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that. Oh, that. Yeah. Uh, he joins up with the 201st Squadron and he goes off to France and everybody's like, hey, what up? It's Cooper. Like, ah. And he's like, guys, y'all, I wanted to be with y'all this whole time. I didn't even care about the Navy. Like, I wanted to be with y'all. I'm like, Cooper. You know, they're all and they're like, oh, yeah. And everybody, like, everybody's putting their hands in. It's like, come on, boys. It's World War One. And Cooper's like, you mean there's going to be another one? Like, like he's, he's, he's like, he's, he's geared up, man. He's, he's giddy. Here's the thing. He goes on some pretty epic adventures during World War I. And during this time, a pretty insane experience happens. And when I say insane, you know, I'm using these kind of grand terms like insane, epic, you know, adventure. Right. These are all like high-end things. Well, let's be real. This is war, right? Yeah, like sure. filled with like traumatic experiences and everything that comes along with it. He's a he's a you know, he's a pilot, he's quite good. This incident occurs, he's across enemy lines. All right, I'm I'm gonna kind of paint you this picture. World War One. Bomber plane, gun plane. Uh, he's he's the flyer. You know they had the flyer and they had the gunman, right? So he's behind the wheel. He's the one flying. He's got his gunman. They're over enemy territories. They're dropping bombs. They get attacked. Okay, so you know the 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 enemy's coming in. They're shooting at him. Uh, his plane gets hit. In fact, the engine gets hit, and not just that, his gunman gets shot in the neck. Oh wow! Right. So at this moment. Cooper is flying a plane that is actively on fire as the fire and the smoke is coming in at him right at his face. He can't see a thing. He's like breathing in smoke. He turns around. He sees that his gunman is just gushing blood. Okay. And so he, this is before parachutes. So tragic. This is before parachutes, by the way. And so it's, you know, the the plane's kind of starting to go down and he knows that like, you know, this thing's going to crash. He's going to die. Right. You know, his buddy's out here. He's, he's, he's dead. So he climbs out the side of the, the plane and he's going to try to jump. Right. So it's like, as it comes down, it's like, okay, you jump out of the plane before it crashes. It crashes over there. Kind of. You do a rolling. Do a rolling deal. Exactly. And hopefully it's soft enough. You don't break enough bones to, to, to die. Exactly. Yeah. This wow. is his mindset. So he's, he's getting on the plane and he's getting ready to do this. He looks over and he sees his gunman who's bleeding out the neck and his eyes are fluttering. His gunman is still alive. Oh, wow. So Cooper gets back in the plane. Okay. Now, again, the fire's going on and everything else. He goes for the wheel, but his hands have been so burned by the fire that's been going on. Yeah. Because, you know, he's enduring this like intense, like heat and pain, like climbing over the edge of this like metal plane. He can't use the steering wheel because his hands are so burnt. He tries to grab hold the wheel. His hands are extremely, very badly bent. You know, like he can't actually hold it. He uses his knees and his elbows okay like to like pilot the plane so wow we've all probably been there at some point where and you shouldn't but maybe you're holding your pipe and maybe you're holding your coffee and you're trying to drive the car you're in your car so you're kind of you know jimmying it with your kneecap exactly you know stuff like that which you shouldn't do he had no choice in this situation wow so his hands are so he gets back on there (laughs) this is crazy he brings the plane back up in the air and he does a 200-foot spiral dive to put out the flames so that the fi- like so it's no longer on fire. Wow. Right? And it works. The, the flames go out, the smoke stops and everything, and then he's able to pull back up and very clumsily crash land the plane and not die. With his knees and elbows. With his knees and elbow and his gunman uh, clinging onto life behind him. Wow. They both survived this whole experience. 
they would refer to it as their second birth. Yeah, seriously. Because they just kind of experienced this death. And yeah. They go out. Now, when That's they, amazing. Yeah. Now, this is all, like I, like I mentioned before at the top of the story, he was behind enemy lines at the time, right? When this was all occurring. So when he crash lands, he crash lands behind enemy lines. And so he gets captured by the Germans and he's taken to a prison camp and uh, they actually, they, you know, you say what you will about the Germans, but even uh, even when they're the enemies, they're still pretty good at medicine. So they were able to yeah, like, no, patch that's right. up. Yeah. You know, they were able to patch him up pretty good. And uh, uh, and so he spent the rest of the war at that point uh, behind enemy lines in uh, in a prison camp. But while he was there, he met a lot of Russians and he was hearing about like the uh, uh, Bolsheviks back home. Yeah. And, you know, hearing kind of some of the horror stories, it made him like a fervent anti-communist. He was right. like, you know, in, in, in that setting, that's kind of where kind of this this very kind of aggressive anti-communism mindset was kind of born hearing from these Russians back home and dealing with the Bolsheviks and everything. So he becomes kind of motivated both by these stories that he's hearing, but also by this, this sense of not completion. Hmm. And I think this was true for a lot of folks in World War One and just in war in general is you go off, and I can't speak for actual warriors, of which I am not one. But I do think that the, from what I've heard, there seems to be this case where you go off to war inspired by whatever the, the call is. Maybe it's a patriotism. Maybe it's a desire to, to take action because you see injustice, yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah. And you go, but then you're part of the fight. And then the conclusion sometimes feels very lackluster yeah. because we're, we're kind of brought up on kind of um, adventure tales and stories with these kind of grand climactic con like conclusions. Yeah, it should have been more resolved and all that. Exactly. And so not only does he experience that, which I think a lot of soldiers do, he also has this added problem of having like lived out the last weeks of the war in a prison camp. So he wasn't even, he wasn't even fighting during that time, right? And so he has this sense of like lack of conclusion as all of this is going on. And so he decides that uh, he goes or af afterwards he decides he wants to be of service. He goes over to Poland to help out with uh, some of the uh, the relief efforts that are going on there. And he really establishes this like hardcore connection with the Polish people. So much so that he actually establishes, and I'm about to butcher this, <laughs> the Kosciusko Squadron. Kosciusko Squadron, I think. Oh, wow. Does that sound right? It does. That's interesting. <laughs> this is very much an aside. Yeah, yeah, by all means. So Kosciuszko, if, if I'm remembering right, General Kosciuszko was a Polish person that came to help the Americans in the American War of Independence there you against go. Great Britain. There you go. Do you know there is a city in our great state of Mississippi named after this gentleman? <laughs> I did not know. But that's it. Kosciusko does sound like a Mississippi city. I will but say that. But we call it Kosciusko. No. And so Kosciusko is pronounced Kosciusko if you're a real, actual, intelligent person. I had no clue of but that. But because we're Mississippians, we, we call, call it Kosciusko. Kosciusko. And, and that's how I know that name. Shut the front door. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Matter of fact, they have in Kosciusko, Mississippi, they have a um, bronze statue of General Kosciusko. How about that? Right there. That's the only reason I know that name. What a wild connection, man. <laughs> well, yeah. So Cooper takes it like, you know, he helps establish this, this fighter squadron of Americans who are fighting for the Polish and he becomes a bomber during their war against the Bolsheviks. Again, he's a fantastic fighter pilot, obviously kind of a heroic warrior. He does get captured a lot. <laughs> yeah. So he's been captured before. And even during this time, he's actually captured by the Red Cavalry. And the Red Cavalry in particular was known for the ruthlessness of how they treat their captives. Now, as opposed to before, where after he was captured and, you know, they, they you know, brought him back to health while he was in prison camp, he knows these guys, they ain't going to give him some, like, Tylenol. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about to be a, oh, man. a pretty rough situation. Here's the thing. Remember that whole situation with the with the bot with the plane going down and the fire and it burning his hands? Yeah, sure. So when the Red Cavalry actually caps like like captures him, they look at his hands and see how dis like like torn up they Bludgeoned are. they are. They assume he's a peasant and thus they don't treat him as if he's like a prisoner of war. Oh wow. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So like the scars that he got from that first crash, from that first capture, actually ended up saving him in many respects in the second one. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. He goes out, he is, he's able to escape from uh their prison and he has one of the most highly traumatic moments of his life. Uh and you know, 
which is interesting. Given all that I've just said, a lot of highly traumatic moments that have all transpired. He has to, uh, he comes across one of the Russian soldiers and in hand-to-hand combat has to kill him. Now, Cooper's actually killed people before. He's a fighter pilot and a a bomber on top of that. So like he's done a lot of destruction. Hand-to-hand, like killing somebody with your bare hands is a whole different experience. Yeah. And And then while having these injuries, you know. Well, exactly. But I think it was really more of the literally having to stab someone in the neck and watch them die like right there in front of you. Had this extremely just traumatic experience for him. Yeah. Uh, after the war, uh, the Polish government uh, actually reached out to Cooper. They wanted to thank him for his service, for what they've done. Because, you know, he's an American that's over here doing this for him. Uh, they want to give him land. They want to give him money. He doesn't take any of that. He doesn't want to profit at all from his experiences. Wow. Yeah. He was fervent. Like, this this man was very driven by his convictions. And one of those convictions was, like, anti-war profiteering. Yeah. You know, he was a warrior, but he would not profit from war. Right. You know what I mean? And, uh, and Boy, that, that's interesting. That comes into play later on in life as well. Uh, he goes back home. There's this uh, kind of legend that he, he came back to New York City. Uh, he had like a few bucks and he had a jacket and he gave away his jacket and a few bucks so he could start completely clean and completely fresh and establish himself in kind of a new life post-war wow. in America. So 1922, um, he became an over uh, an overseas documentarian so that he got a chance to finally indulge in his love and adventure, right? So you think you know, that kid who had all of these dreams for seeing the world grows up and experience, like goes off to war, kind of excited, you know, not only am I going to war, I'm going to war as a pilot and I'm going to like, yeah, like I'm going to be like one of these good guys, you know, goes through like near death experiences, you know, has his body scarred, has his mind scarred, all of this stuff. And so now he just wants to go back and explore the world in like a non- you know, a kind of aggressive way, you know, like, like literally just with that love of adventure and kind of what's behind the next turn, what's over that peak, what's, you know, like conquering, conquering the earth itself, as opposed to like trying, like, like conquering other people. Yeah. Bloodlust or whatever. Exactly. Well, it was never about bloodlust, but no, no, but that's, but that's fair. It's, it's not about the bloodlust for him. It was, he's, he's, he's very driven by his ideals. Right. Right. Um, but this kind of is his chance to kind of, you know, explore the love of his youth from that standpoint. Hmm. His crew would go on these crazy expeditions and they would look for story and, and go out looking just to film it. So they wouldn't have a purpose. You couldn't do this today. Like, you know, like they wouldn't have like, they didn't have like an agenda or a purpose or whatever. Like, no, we're going to go out. We're going to see what we can find. And when we find a story, that's when we're going to film it. And we're going to cut that together as the documentary. Um, he would also push his crew to like crazy limits. And in fact, really redefined kind of what document, like documenting kind of, especially wildlife was like. Because he would do these things where like, you know, like he would be like right up there and bring the camera right up to where a tiger was attacking (laughs) and like let the tiger attack the camera. Golly. And this is not like a trained tiger. This is like out in the wilderness. This is a feral tiger, right? Feral tiger. And so like all of these people, I mean, it seems like an oxymoron to even say it, right? Right. But so like all of his crew is like, what what is with this dude? And it's like, y'all... Do you know what he's lived through? Like his whole he mindset. Care. Yeah. This is not a big deal to him. Exactly. Like his whole mindset when his team tried to hold him back was like, I mean, like, I don't know what your problem. I have a gun. Like, I'm fine. Like, if the tiger just gets a hold of my arm, then I'll just shoot him before he yeah, finishes. What's the, the worst job. thing? I lose an arm. Exactly. Right? No big deal. It was it was it was very much like that. He brought kind of that boldness and kind of that <laughs> experience of having had these near like have looking death in the face so many times into the way in which he captured video. And so you know, something else about him as well is he was all about kind of finding that story and kind of the human element. And so connecting with the people that they would follow. Now it's interesting because like I, um, as I kind of looked at this guy's life and started like detailing out like who he was, you know, originally I was like, okay, I'm very interested in this guy because ultimately he's going to become the producer and the creator of King Kong. Yeah. But in all of this, you can actually see kind of the inspiration. He actually, have you have you seen the movie King Kong? It's been a long time, but I, I have seen it. Yeah. So in 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 King Kong, there's actually the primary character is heavily based off of him, and I mean, like he writes himself into this movie mm-hmm. in so many respects, because he's out here, he's going on these expeditions, he's just kind of looking for for nature and for story and that sort of thing, and and so you know he's got this you know uh, devil may care attitude when it comes to danger as uh, you know trying to capture this. This is freaking Cooper, like this is himself writing himself into the story of King Kong. And the thing is he he've ha- he had this idea for 
this kind of guerrilla film that he wanted to make. And, you know, nowadays you think about monster movies, you know, you've got even like Godzilla versus King Kong and kind of like all of these uh, kaiju films and everything else. Back then, I want to make a movie about a giant gorilla. This is before CGI. Yeah. This is before, you know, like stop motion was around. In fact, stop motion was pretty, act, you know, being used. That was the special effect of the day. But even still, it it's still a little like. It's stop motion. It's stop motion. Right. Like, it, it's like a it's like a puppet. And in his mind, he has this like, you know, this monster movie, this kind of primal like like force that he wants to bring to New York City and and like like have this terrifying experience. It's almost he, an idea that there's not even a it's almost like he had to invent the technology to to make it happen. That's like, you know, and, you know, and most of our great filmmakers, that's exactly have done that. where they are. Yeah. Exactly. They the the technology doesn't exist to capture their imagination. So they have to push the technology right. to get there. Man, that was Cooper. He was always about pushing that technology. And, you know, so when he finally was able to find somebody to produce this film, it started going over budget really, really quickly because they've got, you know, the, they've got this animatronics that these massive sets and everything in order to try to save money. They actually shot a different film using the exact same, like, like uh, sets, a yeah. lot of the same crew, like the exact same crew, most of the same cast. And they produced the most dangerous game. Now, I don't think that's based off the book the most dangerous game, but it okay. might be. I have actually never seen it. It came out in 1932. And like, if you look at that movie, it's like, oh no, this is just, this is all happened. Like it's, it, it could be the Kong. same universe, right? Like, right. It's the exact same thing. No, no giant monkey. Like, you know what I mean? There's no giant <laughs> like gorilla or anything, but I mean like that's, it's, it's the exact same cast and everything else. And they're just kind of doing it in their spare time because they have to like make up for the fact that like this yeah. budget is insane. Yeah. And so thus with that one budget, they created two movies. It wasn't a bad idea, all things considered. Yeah. yeah, it worked out pretty well. All right, so he's he's pushing forth this movie, and when he first originally kind of pitches the idea and finally gets a, a company that's going to you know work with him on it, his idea, again, stop motion, kind of kitschy, and people aren't really dealing with it. CGI, nobody's thought of it, right? Like, it's not like, what's a computer? So he's trying to figure out, like, how to do this. What do you think, Miriam C. Cooper, what do you think he does? How do you think he's going to capture, like, the realness of like this giant gorilla. What do you think he was, he's going to do? Just what do you think? I mean, in my mind, it's like you, you got to dress someone up in a costume. No, no, no. That's too cheesy, man. What, what do you think? Miriam C. Cooper, the guy that gets like live tigers to attack him. Like, what do you think he's about? To oh, do? it gets a real gorilla. He gets a real gorilla. So <laughs> he pro like proposes this mindset of getting like the biggest, like giant gorilla and shipping it in so they can use this gorilla to shoot these scenes with. And everybody is like, that's where we draw the line. <laughs> Not gonna happen. It's like the worst idea ever <laughs> to train this wild animal. And you gotta understand, like Cooper, like you know, it's it's hard to just really communicate what his documentaries, as few of them as they were at the time, really did to audiences who don't have like the whiz bangness of our modern like media cinema going audiences. Yeah, right? sure. Like he did this thing. And there's a name for it. I'm kind of blanking on the name for it, but but he shot Magnoscope. He, he did this thing called Magnoscope, and uh, that's the idea where the image starts small on the screen and gets slowly larger, but it gets slowly larger as the action starts increasing. Okay. And he shot this elephant stampede through this village with literally the elephant stampede coming towards the camera. And as the shot, like, and he does this magnoscope thing so that it gets bigger over time. As it's happening, yeah. You and me, we look at that and we're like, huh, you know, okay. But it, that word's revolutionary. It was then. revolutionary. Right. And like, like audiences. In, in cinematography. It blew their minds. Right. Because it brought not just the, the uh, action, you know, it, it kind of brought in, it in larger. It escalated it. It escalated it. Right. It escalated the fear and, and everything else. And so he was all about like pushing the envelope to communicate that intensity. Hmm. And I think that comes through uh, with King Kong in, in particular. Um, you know, I, I want to make reference to this. You know, you look at uh, King Kong in the more modern retellings of the story. You you haven't seen that at all, I'm sure. Like, no, none uh, of like the modern monster movies or anything like that. None right? of that. Mm -mm. They do kind of a, a different modern take on King Kong where they have Sam Jackson play kind of the the primary character. And he is going out and it's the same type of deal. Like the, like he's finishing up, I think it's world war one or maybe it's world war two. Maybe it's Vietnam. It's Vietnam. It's Vietnam war. He's fighting the Vietnam war. 
he is, you know, the, the war ends and he's got that sense of like lack of completion and he needs, he needs a victory. And so finding Kong and trying to destroy Kong becomes his, his like desire, like that, that conclusion. Goal. Yeah. And I feel like, like having now researched Miriam C. Cooper, I can't help but think that they looked at his early life and kind of inspired the Sam Jackson character. While Cooper's uh, primary character in the original King Kong movie was very much based off the idealized version of who he saw himself as yeah. and, and who he was as a documentarian, Sam Jackson's version was very much like who he was like during his his wartime. You can kind of see that wow. in yeah. how they model that character. I had no idea when I, when I saw that movie until I put it in the context That's really of, neat. of reading this. Uh, man, he would go on to pioneer so many different techniques in in the uh, in the film industry. He was a a big fan of when uh, color came in. They had Technicolor, which is where they would go back and they would repaint the the frames of these films and bring them into full color. And you know, back then the picture business was like, nah, hey, this color thing is never gonna take. See, <laughs> hey, you're gonna, what are you gonna do? You're gonna have a bunch of people in a room. They're gonna be painting every single cell. People, you know, this is ridiculous. It's too expensive. Wow. <laughs> Never tell Miriam C. Cooper it's too expensive because that is exactly where he's going to run to. That's great. This will kill you and it's too expensive. Sign me up. That's exactly <laughs> where, where he's going to be. So he was a big advocate for Technicolor and kind of moving uh, movies into more of like a bright, full colored spectrum. He was also a big fan of moving towards larger screen. So back in the day, you remember how, man, in our lifetime, Televisions went from squares to rectangles. Yeah, sure. Isn't that crazy? Like yeah. that's that like just in the past what twenty five years or something. Exactly. Yeah. They went from squares to slightly uh, smaller, like to, to small rectangles, to now where they're like these massive rectangles. Just straight up rectangle. The widescreen. Yeah. You could get the DVDs, which kids a DVD was a movie that instead of streaming it, you it bought was it. on this chip thing. Yeah, that you bought and you round. had to insert into this slot. Exactly. Right. They had the, after you blew it off and covered it with toothpaste. They had the full screen and the <laughs> widescreen. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, you yeah. had to choose based off of what TV is. Mm-hmm. So in the movie theaters, they had they you know when everything kind of got larger and you had the full cinematic scope of like the wide screen, he was present as that transition was going on. In fact, he was shooting a film at the time that he first experienced kind of the wide screen and was like, we got to redo this whole thing. We got to, we got to rethink everything because widescreen is the way to go. And that's the way of the future. People didn't want to do it. It was a crazy technology. It required these custom cameras where it was like capturing essentially like three different shots at the yeah. exact same time yeah. just to make up, you know, the entire screen. And, you know, this is an aviation nut. This guy is going out and he's like, we're going to showcase this in an amazing way. He goes out and basically flies a plane across America with this camera attached to it so that he could really like champion this new technology of like a full screen, like cinematic experience. experience. Yeah. The funny thing is at the time it was the only cinematic camera of its kind in the country. And it was flying around on an airplane all across the country. And had anything happened to that plane, it would have set Toast. back the industry. <laughs> wow. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So he was a he was a big proponent of like advancing this technology to some extent, like, you know, no matter the cost. And I think it's because he did experience so much of of, you know, that that near-death experience in his early life that he was driven to go go further, go faster. Uh, World War II happens. Once again, um, he uh, is not a fan of war profiteering. He himself, you know, I talked a lot about his movie experience. He also had a lot of aviation experience as well. He was on the board of directors for one of the first, um, you know, consumer flight uh, companies in the country. Yeah. He sold all of his stock in aviation once World War II started because he did not want to profit again from war. It's just part of his fabric. But yeah. at the same time, he went back into service. In fact, he was actually present when the Japanese signed uh, the, the letter of surrender. Oh, wow. Because of his service during World War II. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know. He after World War Two, you know, he was again, he's in this place where he's he's got this aviation background. He's got this Hollywood background. He absolutely loves America. He hates communism. And he feels like the best way to fight communism is for Americans to really kind of see themselves in their own story. And so he gets heavy into like cowboy Western films. Yeah. And this gets back to like the thing that I was saying at the very beginning. When you think about like America and when you think about the iconography of America, you have like these different ideas. You have like, 
you know, New York with the Empire State Building and like, you know, this, this, these kind of, you know, uh, these icons of, of how the world perceives America. Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then you also have like, you know, the Western and kind of the wild West. And that was also part of kind of the iconography of America. And over the years it's changed, right? We're, we're a melting pot. We've got all these different kind of imageries that kind of, you know, people associate for good or for ill with America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like in his mind, like he really wanted to push those icons, not just so that the world could see America in this way, but so Americans could see themselves in this way. Hmm. And so like, he really kind of championed a lot of like cowboy films and like got really super deep into that, especially kind of late in life. That's neat. He was an eccentric man, constantly known for smoking a pipe. He was never very put together. He would fit very well on Country Squire Radio in that way. <laughs> uh, he was never very put together. He always looked a little slapdash, but always talking himself up like crazy. Like these Hollywood types. Like, oh, I'm the greatest of the greatest. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. And I can't give him like the guy, the classic, you know, whatever kind of thing. Because there's audio that you can find of his voice, and he is just very Southern, you know, like he oh, was that's born funny. in Jacksonville, Florida. And even though it traveled all around the world, you can hear exactly where he came from you know like yeah yeah, you can hear that in his voice he fell off the turnip truck (laughs) exactly (laughs) it is wild because you do see him popping up literally all over the world uh his education in the country before he even leaves the country is all over the country he goes all over the world but i'll tell you what when you hear him you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't assume that he's ever been a day outside of florida you know um again always smoking a pipe and essentially an individual and somebody certainly worth half a bowl of history oh my gosh beyond can yeah. i tell you i did so i barely great, scratched the surface of my own notes and my own notes barely scratched the surface of his history of him yeah it's it's crazy it's oh it's wonderful though what an interesting character someone that yeah obviously had a lot of conviction but was incredibly talented and thoughtful about what the future was supposed to look like in his mind and uh and and, and made a lot of it happen so oh that's so great uh the really well really done man well I, done it's an interesting era to mine for pipe smokers who are doing some really crazy things. Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, like, and so I, I encourage folks to, to, you know, look into it and, uh, and yeah, you know, classic Hollywood. Yeah. More than anything, it just makes me want to go watch King Kong again. I tell you what. And I mean, like I, it, it made me, yes, it did. And especially like hearing people talk about how that movie like impacted them and how it terrified them. And it was just like, yeah, this, sure. I mean, we look at it. And it's like, this is stop motion gorilla. And right. it looks silly to us. But to them, it just blew their minds. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> and what I love about the way in which the modern kaiju films, like in America, have done, like with you know the I think they call it the monster verse, where you have all like you know Mothra and Godzilla and King Kong. They all exist in like the same universe now and everything. The way in which they reintroduce King Kong in the modern context, I never knew that they were really that they were pulling from like Cooper's life. In the same way that like Cooper was pulling from his own, but they were pulling from his life like further back. And I think it tells a more human story in yeah. the modern context because they were tapping into not the idealized version of yourself you always wanted to be as a kid, but who you actually are. Hmm. It works really well. Hmm. So and as much Especially as Especially someone as strong and as just had so many interesting life experiences yeah. he did. Yeah. And, and as much as it does, like this might encourage you to go back and watch the original Kong, which absolutely go for it. That's an important piece of American cinema. Check out the new one. I, I slept on that one for a long time and I watched it when like the Godzilla versus Kong movie came out. I was like, well, I, I do kind of want to see, you know, King Kong and Godzilla fight. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And so I went back and rewatched it and I, I remember I was like, no, that, yeah, this is actually a pretty good movie, but now it makes me really want to see it again through this lens. Right. So anyway, that's great, man. Well done. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Look, I enjoyed it. Love, uh, love, love a half a bowl of history. Hey, if you want to have a half a bowl of pipe tobacco, what should you be smoking? You should be smoking a Missouri Meerschaum. I can score out by Rufus and the <laughs> They have a fun, uh, a fun series called Back to Our Roots. And right. It's a beautiful series uh, that has a real nice blonde uh, finish on the the bowl of the pipes. Uh, three corn cob pipes, one hardwood pipe, uh, and then a very lovely green stem. And uh, comes in four different shapes: the Bracken, the Maddox, the Boone, and the Xenon. And uh, all of them are available right now on uh, Corn Cob Pipe. Uh, dot com. And so if you'll go there, they will be glad to send one right to your front door. There you go. And big fa- thanks to our friends at Missouri Mission for sponsoring this show. Quick, Quick fire, fire with, with the Squire. Squire. Quick fire question. Ow! All right. 
right, man. Quick fire quest Jones from Jeremy. All right. So we're continuing Jeremy's quest to find like the perfect pipe, right? Like, uh, this oh, is yeah. Where he set us out on here. Okay. Uh, all right. Short, so like a bulldog, or medium or long. So, and he gives examples here. So short, like a bulldog, medium, like a Bings or like a Von Eric, or long, like a church warden. Hmm. Yeah, probably a medium sized pipe, I would think. Yeah. I mean there there's medium sized bulldogs and whatnot too, but but yeah, I think that would kind of fit my um fit my profile your, your better. Right there. Yeah. I, yeah. I tend to be medium, but at the same time now that I think about it, like a lot of my pipes are kind of short. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like a short pipe. Um yeah. but yeah, prob- probably more on the medium side, I'd I'd say. Yeah. Thick shank or pencil shake shank. Between the two, pencil shank, I really prefer just kind of a medium normal size shank. I, yeah. I used to like those very slender shank pipes, but yeah, more of a medium now. But if I had to pick between the two, pencil shank. Let's go pencil. I'm I'm right there with you. A shank garnish or plain. So like a brass, silver, gold, bamboo, or yeah. just like straight plain. I, I really like uh, either sterling silver or gold, if if it's real gold. Um I I, I love those, but um yeah, those are those are really nice. Um, and then he says, uh, yeah, John David, correct me if I'm wrong, but the band around the shank is called a ferrule. And yeah, that, that's correct. It's this little, uh, kind of metal cap that goes over the end of the, of the shank there. So, um, really pretty, but I like the silver and the, uh, and the gold. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't know that gold was used. Wouldn't that be too malleable with the heated surface like that? No, no. We sold a, uh, sold a Dunhill, uh, estate pipe not too long ago that had 14 carat wow. gold on it. Matter of fact, in the shop right now, I've got a Caminetto gorgeous pipe that may one day come home with me if no one buys it. It's, uh, it's got 18 karat gold and 18 karat gold, uh, ferrule on it. Yeah. Stunning, stunning pipe. Yeah. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. I, I, I too like silver. I like a, I like a silver shank for yeah. sure. Like our silver on the shank, I should say. All right, then finally, a nomenclature proudly displayed or cleverly hidden? I think proudly displayed. If I'm smoking a really nice pipe, like I'd, I'd like to see the see the name there. So this is where I think we div- like like actually go in different directions. Like I, if it's a symbol, yeah, you know what I mean, like a dot or like a little Viking helmet or like a carving, like whatever it, it is, whatever yeah. it is. Like if it if it's a symbol. Especially if it's like a sleek symbol, mm-hmm. then it can be proudly displayed. Something cool, yeah. But if it's like the name stamped on it, yeah, no, yeah, you can hide that. No, hide that. Like hmm. maybe don't even put it on there. Let let the work speak for itself. Yeah, I, I don't see. know. That's that's just my that's my two cents. Mm-hmm. All right, well there you go. Well, that's uh, quick fire questions from Jeremy. Thanks, Jeremy, for that. And hey, if you got quick fire questions for us, be sure to send them into the show. That is show at countrysquireradio.com. Your, your thoughts, thoughts, your, your comments. comments. Listener feedback. Listener feedback. Uh, this one's coming in from Desharadar. 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 <laughs> 87. He says, hey, I'm a fan of the podcast. I listen to it weekly with John David and Bo's Legends of the Pipe series or whatever name they change it to. I have a, a candidate that they may be interested in. Shelby Foote uh, is a renowned author and I think is from Mississippi. He wrote the popular Civil War, a narrative uh, that was on Ken Burns' Civil War documentary from the 90s. He was always smoking a pipe. Yeah, so we have talked about Shelby Foote uh, quite a bit on the show. Yep. It's been it's actually been a long time since we have. But yeah, uh, from a, a Memphis native, Shelby Foote, obviously very famous pipe smoker and, uh, you know, Southern scholar, Civil War scholar, someone that, you know, is very, in some way, in some ways really... He's kind of like the, you know, these scientists that like popularize science like uh, Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson, like, like in some ways, like he was that for American history, hmm. like he popularized yeah, yeah. it in some way for the U.S. Kind of so, made it um, tangible. Did, made yeah. it accessible and, and told the story in a way that folks could, could grasp it, the realness of it. So yeah, uh, Mr. Foote was from Memphis and I think he may have grown up in Holly Springs, which is north mississippi if i'm if i'm remembering that right but uh yeah famous pipe smoker i bet man really really nice uh thanks for that recommendation we also got one from james said i would like to suggest uh charles nelson riley for a pipe smoker episode he was an actor and comedian was on match game for many years and was often smoking his pipe during the show yeah charles nelson riley yeah we also (laughs) had uh from david lamontagne uh said i'm really enjoying your podcast on pirates uh maybe think about doing one legendary marine general pipe smoker lewis chesty puler 
Yeah, cool. Yeah, very, very cool. That'd be great. You know, so these are all great recommendations. We really appreciate getting those in. I, I do, you know, I was, I've been very much thinking about, you know, kind of who next and that sort of thing. I, you know, I was sharing with you, I've got kind of a short list of people I definitely want to hit up in the near future. Yeah, yeah. There's also one individual, though, as well from Hollywood that I, I, I do want to do another, like, special on. And that is, um, oh, shoot, Ricky Ricardo. Who played Ricky Ricardo from? Desi Arnaz. Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Yeah. That dude was a BA dude. Yeah. You know, and like, I think as I was reading about like, you know, kind of the fervent anti-communist, I was thinking about the whole, like the red scare and then how Lucy was tied up with that, but how yeah, Desi sure. was also like a, like a, like a hardcore anti-communist is like, well, and then like, you know, like, so you had this like hardcore anti-communist and then like, you know, his wife was on trial cause like the world was coming after cause she had signed up with the communist party when she was a kid. And oh, else. wow. It was yeah. all, I it, guess I'd forgotten all that. It's a fascinating yeah. story. And then just Desi is just a fascinating individual who was like a pioneer, you know, as like a Cuban American at the time. Yeah, too, like, sure. And a pipe smoker. And so like definitely somebody that will be uh, covering him. In the That's cool. So I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser and look forward to covering it down the line. You know, little Ricky lives in Jackson, right? I did not know. Is that true? That is fact. Shut the front door. I, I, I can tell you more about it later, but li- little Ricky lives in Jackson, Mississippi. We're saving. We're saving. What? <laughs> what? He does. Come on. He does. This is this is just the ep- this is a series that keeps on giving. Y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. You can keep up with us. Find all our contact information. Country Square Radio. That's gonna do it for us for this week. Hey man, let's go have a day. See you, brother. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.